Good morning. Can I turn it on? Can you hear me? Okay, good. <clears throat> Glad to be with you this morning. Uh, for those of you who are regulars, I'm not Fudd. And uh, Fudd is actually, um, he is helping out a fellow pastor in Charlotte who is on sabbatical, and they've asked for some guys to come and preach for him. So, what that means, two things. One, over the past few weeks, he has been setting this sermon up and setting it up to epic proportions, if you will. And I've put a lot of, puts a lot of pressure on me, which I'm very grateful for. And, uh, and then let me just say it. We started this series. You know, we're going Genesis 1 through 12. So Fudd, on Mother's Day, gets to preach creation, which is great and glorious. It's Father's Day, and I get to preach the fall. Happy Father's Day. So... Uh, it's it's going to be good. I'm I'm excited about it. I'm looking forward to it. I'm glad you're here. My name is Jack. Um, if you're a, a member, a regular tender, we're glad you're here. If it's your first time with us, thanks for coming. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, we are we're glad that you're here. Um, there is a Bible under the chairs in front of you. If you don't have one, uh, f- please feel free to grab that. We are in Genesis chapter three today. We'll read it in a few minutes. Um, if you're not sure where Genesis is, it's the very first book of the Bible, and it's the third chapter, so it's right there, easy to find. Just start at the front, you'll find it pretty easy. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, we are in a series right now where we're going uh, Genesis 1 through 12. Uh, basically, for the summer, we'll be going through that, um, just kind of looking at the big theme. There's such, so many central themes that are answered in those chapters, and these chapters just have such great significance for all of us. In so many ways. Um, in fact, today, <clears throat> I'm convinced that Genesis chapter 3 is probably of greater importance than most of us would recognize. Uh, there's a guy who is a uh, very famous preacher in the 1800s named George Whitfield, and this is what he said of Genesis 3. Moses unfolds more in that chapter than all of mankind would have been capable of finding out themselves, though they had studied it to all eternity. It's, it's a profound chapter, and let me, let me just say, um, this is not a, uh, this isn't a, a happy chapter, okay? This, you know, we, we read creation and it's amazing, and it's wonderful, and it, and it can just makes us stand in awe and excitement. And when you get to Genesis chapter 3, especially if you've never read it, I'm just going to set you up right now. This is, not a, this is not a happy sermon in its entirety, but there is a great moment of hope and joy that comes that is profound. And we will get to that. But... What I want to do is I want us this morning to, to really dive in. Last week, we finished Genesis chapter 2. So there at the end of it, you have the man and the woman. They are together. They are naked. They are unashamed. Everything is, is perfect. It's this beautiful picture of, of goodness, of harmony. Um, they are in a place that displays the handiwork of God on a on an infinite scale it's amazing imagine creation in it all of its perfection right there in front of them and one of the amazing things is as we look at creation too we see that not only was god creating the earth god was creating something that ultimately was meant to one display his glory but two to be a place inhabited by people In fact, if you follow the days of creation, if you look at all of it, the way that it's put together, it was designed for people to live in it. So as man is the pinnacle of God's creation, we see all the rest of of creation is supporting that. That just kind of undergirds everything that we are. And we can't jump into Genesis 3 until we make sure that we are right there understanding that, getting that, knowing the perfection, the beauty, the amazingness, the provision of God. Everything worked together perfectly. There was harmony There was peace, there was no suffering, there was no pain, there was no death. Beauty reigned supreme, it was an amazing place. There was nothing that was lacking. And if you look at people especially, notice they had harmony with God, said that God would come and walk with them. They had harmony with each other, they had harmony with creation. Now, the problem is, is that when we see the picture of Genesis 1 and 2, 
and then we compare it to the world we live in today, we understand they are vastly different. The way that the world is presented in Genesis 1 and 2 is not the way that we see it today. People don't live in perfect harmony. They're natural disasters. People die. Young people get cancer. All of these things that we can think about, all of the the brokenness and the suffering and the war and the pain and the hurt, when we look at our world right now, we look at Genesis 1 and 2 and we say, that's not the way our world is. And so imagine, if you will, the very first time you're reading this story, you've read about creation and you get to the end of Genesis chapter 2 and what's in your mind, the question is, what happened? Something had to happen because it's not this way. Why isn't it this way now? Because this is not the way that it works. People suffer. People die. Bad things happen. Why doesn't everything work together perfectly? And Genesis 3 is the answer to that question. That's why this is not one of those happy, feel-good sermons. So what I want us to do is I want us to read Genesis chapter 3 in its entirety together. It's 24 verses, so it's a little bit long, but I don't want us to miss anything. Um, Because there's so many passages for me to kind of go word by word through each verse, you guys don't want to be here for three hours as much as fun as that would be for me, just to work word by word. So I won't be able to hit every single little phrase, but I want us to get the entire context of Genesis 3. So I'm going to read it out loud. You can follow along with me there in your copy of the scriptures. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to desire to, be, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave with me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand, take also the tree of life and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and and 
At the east of the garden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Father, we are confronted with rebellion, treason, and unbelief, and pain and sadness in this text. But God, we know that there is also hope here. Father, I pray that none of us would close our ears, that none of us would dismiss this, that the reality of this text would sit strongly upon us, and that we would, even in the midst of this horrific scene, stand in awe of your grace, mercy, and love. Father, open our ears. pray that you would open my mouth. I pray that we would see the truth. We would love the truth. And we would act in faith and follow you. We love you. And we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Really, this text kind of breaks down pretty naturally into three different sections. The first first section is called this, Mankind Rebelled Against God. Mankind rebelled against God. Now, if you'll remember, when God placed Adam in the garden, he gave him one command. We find that in Genesis two sixteen and 17. It says, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, one of the things I want us to see in this command that God gave in Genesis 2, before we get to Genesis 3, is even the goodness of God in this command. Notice what God says. He says, don't eat of this tree because in the day that you eat of it, you will die. God doesn't just say, hey, look, I just don't want you to eat it, so don't go over there. Notice God says, I don't want you to eat it, but here's what's going to happen to you. If you eat of this tree, you will die. Death had not been there. They had not seen death. There was no prospect of death on the horizon. But what God does is he tells Adam and Eve, he says, you can eat of any tree. I've given you every single one of these trees that are right here. Just don't eat of this one. And let me know, let me tell you, if you eat of this one, there will be dire consequences. One Puritan said this, It's certain that situated as he was, no command could be easier. As it properly implied, no sacrifice, no painful painful privation. As a Puritan, so he wrote like in the 1600s, using the word privation. But simple abstinence from one out of many things. For who would deem it a hardship while he was sitting at a table covered with all kinds of delicate and substantial foods to be told that there was one and only one that he was forbidden to taste? Let's let's make sure we get this, we understand this. God has provided every single thing that people needed, every bit of it. In multitudes, in plenty, just there's such substantial things for everyone. He says, there's one tree, don't eat of that fruit. And if you look at that, what he says is right. No command could be easier. God says, I've given you so much, just don't touch this one tree. Don't eat of it. That's what we would think. That's where we we look at it and we'd think, okay. And in fact, there's an author by the name of A.W. Pink. I'll probably quote him a couple times this morning. He wrote a book called Our Accountability to God. It's all about the doctrine of sin. It is a a fantastic book um, and is just mind-boggling, some of the things he brought out. But one of the things he brought out is that Adam and Eve were created morally pure. So the easiest thing for them to do was actually obey the commands of God. So there's a, there's a pretty simple, straightforward, easy command. They're created morally pure. They can choose between right and wrong. They can choose to obey or disobey. The easiest thing for them to do, because they're morally pure, because it's an easiest command, it should be that they continue in obedience forever. But in Genesis 3, 1, a new character comes onto the scene. That character is the serpent. Now what we find here, all we see here is that it's a serpent, so we think, okay, a talking snake. Well, as we read more into Scripture, as we, as we continue on into Scripture, we see more unfolding of who this character really is. Not simply a snake, but an angelic being created by God who fell and wanted God's throne, wanted to take over, wanted to be supreme. 
whom God cast down. And now he hates God, hates his creation, hates everything wonderful, pure, and lovely. And so what he does is he comes to the pinnacle of God's creation, that which is created in his image, and seeks to destroy destroy it. And he holds out to the woman a lie. Now, one of the things that we see when we look at this account, you could almost look at this as an anti-creation account, okay? Because if you remember in creation, remember who it is that's speaking. God is speaking, and he's saying that things are good. When you get to Genesis chapter 3, the serpent is speaking, and he's saying what's not good. It's not good for you not to have that. What's good is that you eat that. So let's look at this lie. Let's look at what's going on here. Notice what he says. He says to the woman, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God, but God said you should not eat of the fruit of the trees in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's four parts to what he says. First thing he says, did God really say? He starts out by planting that very small seed of doubt. And notice where the doubt is going. Primarily to, did God really say that? But also notice the subtlety in which he's already seeking to drive a wedge between Adam and Eve. Because who was the command given to? Adam. Adam's the one who would have told his wife this. Adam's the one who would have said, God said we could have everything. We're not to eat this. And so Satan, he's primarily driving that wedge between, between Eve and God. But he is also subtly going in there and already trying to break them apart. Did God really say that? Did God really say that? Well, she knows what God said because she repeats it. But then he comes out and is even more bold. You will not die. Satan boldly calls God a liar from the very beginning. God said, the day you eat of it, you will die. Satan says, that's a lie. You will not die. Nothing bad is going to happen to you. But then notice the next thing he does. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. What he's doing here is he's calling, the, he's question, calling into question the goodness of God. God is holding out on you. God knows that there's something that's going to happen to you. It's not death that's going to happen. There's something else that's going to happen. It's not bad like death. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's what he's saying. God has got this thing sitting over here, and he is just keeping it from you. He's not doing this for your good. He's not doing this so that things are okay for you. What he's doing is he's keeping you from being like him. Because now, if you eat of this, God knows you're going to be you're going to be able to determine what's right and wrong for yourself. You're not going to have a God outside of you telling you what's good and what's evil. You get to do that. That's what this knowledge of good and evil is about. It's not just, hey, I know now that something's wrong or they know now that something's right. Adam and Eve knew that it was wrong to eat of the fruit. They knew that or they would have just just disobeyed in the very beginning. They knew that. So this is more than just, I know something's right or I know something's wrong. This is a determination. Remember, in creation, everything, what happens? God saw what he had made, and he said it was good. We see this over and over. There is a reason why Moses hammers that over and over and over. God saw, and it was good. God saw, and it was good. God saw, and it was good. And then when we get to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good, Notice what's happened. There is a shift here, and that is intentional. Those words are not accidental. It is intentional because now what has happened is mankind has said, God has lied to me. God doesn't love me. God doesn't want my best. In fact, I now understand what's better for me than what God does. That that fruit looks good. It would make me wise. I think this would be great. And she reaches up, And she takes the fruit and eats it. And lo and behold, up until this point, nothing's been said about the man. But where is he? Right there with her. 
right there with her. It's interesting that Pink, A.W. Pink writes this, Satan is ever seeking to inject that poison into our hearts, to distrust God's goodness, especially in connection with his prohibitions and precepts. That is really what lies behind all evil lusting and disobedience, a discontent with our position and portion, a craving for something which God has wisely held from us. You see, sin at its core, at its root, is ultimately unbelief. It's ultimately a lack of faith. Because notice what happens. If Adam and Eve had truly believed deep down in utter, just hardcore faith, God loves me, God wants my best, any command that God gives is good for me, therefore I don't care what comes against me, I'm going to obey, I'm going to listen. If they truly believed that, they would have told the serpent to get lost. But what happened? In that temptation, their faith began to erode. They stopped believing God. They stopped trusting God. They stopped believing the things they knew about God that were right and that were true. And what did they do? They walked away from him and turned their back on him. Sin at its core is unbelief. Think about that. Think about it for a second. Think about those, for those of you who are followers of Jesus, think about the times that we sin. Don't we kind of follow the same path? Uh, Does the Bible really say that? I mean, mean, let's just be honest, okay? Maybe you've never done that. I've actually done that before. I'm ashamed to admit that. But I've said, was that really what the Bible means when it says that? Is it really that black and white? I mean, it really can't be that bad. Surely this is not going to destroy my life. What I've done is I've listened to the same lie and I've believed it. It goes on everywhere. Let me just think about all the stuff we see. The Bible's an old book. It was written in a different culture, different time. People didn't understand and know things then. Now that we know things now, we can see that that's actually very repressive. So we need to, we need to free ourselves. Take some good concepts, take some good precepts, but let's just, let's do really what's right. Let's determine for ourselves what's good and evil. It's good to be this way, but if you follow it too strictly and you do all that, that's bad, that's repressive, that's bigoted. You can't do that. Well, it's easy for us Christians to look at the world and say, man, they're believing the lie, they're believing the lie, they're believing the lie. But let's don't point a finger without looking at ourselves as well. Because we're just as guilty of the same thing. Because that's the root of what sin is. It's no different, it just has a slightly different cover or a slightly different face. So you see what's going on here is that sin is unbelief. Now I want to take just a second and, and, and deal with, with a question that I've been asked a couple of times. Um, I've, had, I've had several people ask me, uh, I work with college students, so I get, a lot of, I get this a lot from college students. They say, all right, so now if Eve listened and Eve ate the fruit first... Why is it that in the Bible it says that Adam was the one who brought sin into the world? You know? And believe it or not, this is more women than guys who ask me this. So it's not like guys who are trying to get the blame off of the guy. Okay? I know some people think that. It's actually had more girls ask me this. Uh, it's probably because the girls in our ministry are a little more astute than the guys. The guys are like, oh, whatever. So, um, but, but I want to deal with, it, that was, well, somewhat in joking, um, Romans 5, Romans five twelve says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So the question there is, okay, so why is it then? Why is it that if, if Eve was the one who took the fruit native at first and then she gave it to her husband, why is it that, that Adam is the one that Scripture seems to look at as he's the guilty party? Well, a couple of things. Um, I, don't, I don't have all the time. Like, you could spend a whole sermon just talking about this. So what I want to do is want to kind of hit the high points. Um, if you have more questions afterwards, we can, we can talk about it. Um, first off, what we want to understand is that God made a covenant with Adam. Now, when you read the Genesis 2, 16 and 17, which I read earlier, when you follow where it is in the accounts, the man had been created 
There's no mention of the woman yet, but when God gives this command, this command where God says, you do this, and they enter into an agreement, there's a covenant that's made between Adam and God, which also means that Adam is the one responsible for overseeing the covenant, if you will, overseeing the obedience. Um, Pink writes, Adam was much more than the father of the human race. He was also its legal agent, standing in its stead. In other words, by divine constitution and covenant, Adam acted as the federal representative of all of his children. Adam Adam was the representative of every single one who would be a descendant of him, which includes all of us. So Adam stands there, God makes this covenant with him, and as the one one makes the covenant, he then is the one who represents and stands in our place, if you will. Now some people hear that and they say, well, wait just a minute. What if I don't want Adam to stand in my place? Especially us in America. I mean, we're, we're independent. We, we want to stand up. We say, well, I don't know that I want somebody standing in my place. Maybe I would have done better. Well, there's two things I would say about that. One, was there actually a better, a better person to represent us? Now, now take, we'll, take, we'll deal with Jesus in a minute, obviously. All you spiritual people say, well, yeah, Jesus, obviously. Don't go there yet. But as a person, as a created, just a simple created being, which Jesus was not created, as a created being, was there anybody better to represent us? Created perfectly by God, lived in a perfect environment. We already talked about how simple and easy the command should have been to follow. Created morally pure, having walked with God. Is there anything else that Adam was lacking to be a better representative for us? Can you think of somebody on the world today that you would have rather stood in our place than Adam? And really, no. There's, there's really nobody. I mean, you couldn't ask for a better person to stand in and represent us. But here's the other thing. Especially if you're a Christian, I want you to get this, okay? I want you to hold on to this. If you have a problem with Adam being our representative, if you've got a problem with Adam being our representative, then you need to have the same problem with Jesus being our representative. Because as Adam stood in our place and represented us, and then sin spread to us, Jesus came and was the second Adam. The one who did not fall, the one who obeyed completely, the one who withstood temptation. And when he came, he didn't bring death, he took death and brought life. You see, some of us have, some of us will look at it and say, well, I love the fact that Jesus came and lived the life that I could not live, died the death that I deserve and gave me the righteousness that I could not earn. Oh, that is awesome. But I don't know if I want Adam standing in my place. You see, The Bible is replete with the wisdom of God. We see Adam, who should have been able to stand and didn't, and Jesus, who shouldn't have died, but did for us. Oh, the magnitude of the wisdom and the sovereignty and the goodness of God as he puts all of this together. What an amazing thing. So Adam, our representative, the one through whom God made the covenant, falls, and as his descendants We too are mired in the same issue that they've got. Well, when they ate, the results were immediate. We see that. So it says, what does it say? Their eyes were open, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were open. And they knew, okay, so they've got this. Remember, the promise is you eat of this, you're going to know good. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So the idea is almost this ascension, like I'm going to be great when I eat. But what happens? When they eat, they don't rise up like God. They begin cowering. They knew that they were naked. And instead of elevating them, now they are shameful. There's a barrier between them and creation, between each other, between God. Because who are they covering themselves from? Who else is going to see them? Well, God's going to see them, but they're going to see each other. Now this husband and wife who had no shame, there was nothing between them. Now, even now, this sin has made them say, oh, she's going to look at me in a way that I need to cover certain parts of me that I don't want her to see because it's going to be shameful and that she's going to look at that. What's she going to think? And already the distortion of sin has crept in immediately. So what happens? Well, they try to fix themselves. One author wrote that this was man's first attempt at religion to cover up their problem. I'm naked. I need to be covered. Let me do something about it to try to fix myself. 
And we notice it didn't work. Second thing we see, it's a real second division in this chapter. Man rebelled against God. Second one, mankind is cursed by God. So God comes to the garden to be with them. Now, before we get there, we just need to understand God is not unaware of what's going on. We know throughout Scripture, God is sovereign, God is omniscient, God is omnipotent. He knows what's going on. And, and I always think about this in the way, especially now that I have kids, like I kind of get, I feel like I kind of get why God did what he did. I can walk into a room and know that my kids have done something and know exactly what it's done and what happened. But what do you do? What's going on here? Who did that? I mean, you know, when one of my son's names is written on the wall in crayon, you know, I, I, don't, I can read, so I know who did that. But I, I ask those questions. But God, like an like a overwhelmingly wise parent, comes down. Where are you? Well, I heard the sound of you, and I was afraid. Fear. Fear of God. Not the healthy fear, not the awe of God's reverence and a desire to be oh so near him, afraid, running from God. I was afraid, and I hid because I was naked. So God just asked another question. Who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And notice what Adam does, right? He mans up and owns his sin, right? Now that woman that you gave me, did you get that? The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Do you get the subtlety of what Adam has just done there? The woman you gave me. Oh my goodness. He's telling God, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. Wow. So then what does God do? He looks at the woman. What have you done? She said, she said, the serpent, he deceived me and I ate. And then God goes to the serpent. It's amazing. There's, there's blame passing, there's shame, there's hiding, there's, there's strife already in the marriage. I mean, look at the crumbling of perfection that has happened with two bites of a piece of fruit. Amazing how it's been distorted. So God pronounces the, the curse. First to the serpent, Cursed are you above all livestock, beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Uh, one of the uh, commentators writes that the eating of dust is not necessarily literal, so it's not that God's cursing that your food is now going to be dirt, but the idea of dust we'll see several times is that of death of the ground. And so multiple times the word dust and ground is used over and over. If you read, it, read this passage again and look for the words that repeated, dust, ground, over there, all over. It's a symbolic of a curse, of death, of those kind of things. We'll see it again when we come to Adam. Um, and then he says that he will be crushed. I put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. We'll come back to that in a minute. So he's going to be crushed. And then to the woman, this is what he says. I'll multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Now, it's interesting. If you look at that, it's like he says the same thing, but just kind of flips it. I'll multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Why is there repetition? Well, one of this kind of a characteristic of Hebrew poetry. But remember in Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and every living thing that moves on the earth. They, part of God's blessing and intended purpose for mankind was that they would multiply, have babies and lots of them. And now look what's happened. Now, because of the curse, that which is supposed to be a blessing is now filled with pain. That which was supposed to be a blessing now brings pain in with it. Then he says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, some people look at this and they look at this word as desire and rule over. And some people look at this and they think, well, that's where the idea of, of women submitting to men comes from. It's a result of the fall. Well, two things I would say with that. One, um, when we look at those passages in the New Testament, we're never encouraged to do something that is a result of the fall, okay? Paul never says, wives, lie to your husbands. Paul never says, husbands, kill your wives. I mean, he never says that. When we look at that, when we laugh at it, it's like, oh, of course he doesn't. Why not? Because he doesn't encourage us to do things that are sinful as a result of the fall. 
That's the first thing. But secondly, when you look at this, and one of the ways we can understand this, I don't want to steal any thunder from FUD for next week, but if you look over real quick to uh, Genesis 4-7, God God is talking to Cain, and this is what he says. Um, he, he's, he's angry with his brother. He says, if you do well, will it not be accepted? Uh, and if you do not do well, here's what you got. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. It's not a mistake that those exact same words are used there. The word desire is often used of like an army who wants to take over a city. And the word rule is one of like a harsh dominion. So what we find here is that the distortion of what we talked about last week with Adam having a helper who comes alongside him, who compliments him, who they work together in this perfect harmony and union, now there's strife. Now there's no longer Adam leading and the woman helping and walking alongside and equality. There's no equality. There's this idea of fighting and jockeying for position. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to desire over you. I want to rule over you. And then I'm going to rule with a harsh fist. There's this battle that's going on, all as a result of sin. The relationship is not the way that God intended it to be. In fact, there's a guy by the name of Alvin Planting that wrote a book on sin, and the title of the book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And that's really what it is. It's not the way it's supposed to be. But then look at the curse for the man. He says to Adam, he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, there's that pain again. There's ground, pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Notice even the similarity. You know, you shall eat uh, with, the, with the serpent. You, all, you shall eat dust all the days of your life. You shall eat of the ground all the days of your life. There's this idea that sin has crept in here. And no longer remember that what Adam had done was be placed in the garden and to work and keep it, right? The Hebrew words, they're very close to the words for worship and obedience. These words are very different. No longer is Adam simply going to do what's right and be able to just walk up to a tree and pick it off. He's no longer eating of the trees that God provided. He's now having to work the ground in order to have food. And it's not going to be easy. There's pain. There's, work, there's difficulty. And then in the very end of it, by the sweat of your breath, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Man. It's a weighty, weighty statement. Now, some people will ask, well, wait a minute. Didn't God say, actually, that the day they ate of it, they would die? And they did die. They died a death that's worse than a physical death. Now, I want to I say something. Um, I, I'm troubled. Sometimes, sometimes preachers have spiritualized things so much. And so they, they'll take a story, you know, like David and Goliath. And so what are your... Let's, you know, what are your spiritual giants in life? You know, it's that new promotion or the, you know, the kid with a bad temper. That's your giant. So let's, let's spiritualize this. And so sometimes what that does is tend to trivialize things a little bit. In Ephesians 2, 1 says, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. Spiritual death is infinitely worse than physical death. Jesus said, fear him who can throw your soul into hell, not just those who could kill the body. Let's don't trivialize this and say, oh yeah, you know, it's it's our spiritual death. They spiritually died. That is massive. That is huge. They are spiritually dead. And as a result, all of us who follow after them are spiritually dead. We need to be brought alive. The curse is felt everywhere. In people, in creation, Romans 8 says, For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope 
that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom and the glory of the children of God. Tim Keller writes, Disease, genetic disorders, famine, natural disasters, aging, and death itself are as much the results of sin as are oppression, war, crime, and violence. We've lost God's shalom physically, spiritually, socially, psychologically, and culturally. So what we find is that there are sinful things that people do that have an effect on us, and there are some things that just happen because we live in a broken world. Sometimes people do sinful things to us, against us, around us, and they affect us, and sometimes things happen because our world is not the way it's supposed to be. And it leaves us almost like, couldn't it just be one or the other? Couldn't it just have been people were affected? Couldn't it just have been, no, everything was affected. Everything was cursed because of the fall. It's the reason why the world is the way that it is. Here's the answer to our question. We look at creation and we look at it. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. Why isn't our world that way right now? Here's the answer. We've all inherited it. We all live in it. And worse than physical death, we realize that like a corpse, we don't enjoy anything. We don't enjoy and experience God. But, and this is a good but, in the midst of what may be the darkest chapter in the Bible, there's a great and glorious ray of light that shines in. Third thing is this, mankind is given hope. There's immediate hope. God does not destroy them. Notice that. God does not physically cease their existence. They've just committed cosmic treason. What is the consequence for somebody who commits treason against America? Well, it used to be like firing squad or something like that. Treason is a huge offense. Mankind has just committed that, but God doesn't kill them. What does he do? Look at verse 20, look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Their fig leaves wouldn't work. And in a foreshadowing of the sacrifices that are going to be given in the law, which in and of themselves are foreshadowings of the sacrifice of Jesus, God makes something to cover their shame. Do you get this? Do you understand the magnitude of this? God does not destroy them. He does something to cover up their guilt. What in the world? What kind of God is this? He would do this for them? And then he kicks them out of the garden. Now we look at that. Well, that's not good. Yeah, it is. Look at verse 23. Or 22, Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He's determining what's right on his own. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden Eden. Adam has to live and Eve have to live with the results of the fall. But look at what God does. By removing the chance for them to live forever in this state of brokenness and unrepair, he gets them to a place where they can find redemption. That is huge. It's huge for us who are followers of Jesus, who still sin, who still willingly disobey God, to know that God would act this way towards Adam and Eve. It causes us to fall on our face and know that there is hope for us. It's good for those of us or those of you who've never begun to follow Jesus and you look at yourself and you say, there's nothing God could do to forgive me. There's no reason God would let me in. There's no reason God would care anything about me. Here's Adam and Eve who never should have sinned and God does something amazing for them. Oh, the hope that's right there. But there's an even bigger hope. Genesis 3.15. I skipped over it intentionally. Now we're coming back to it. Some of y'all who know this story, you're like, hey, wait, wait a minute, you missed that. I didn't miss it. I'm coming back to it. Here we are. Because this, this is good. He's talking to the serpent. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
there's this interesting thing between your offspring and her offspring. Literally, the Hebrew word is seed. Right here, there's an offspring of woman who's going to do something interesting. Satan symbolizing sin, representing all that's evil, representing rebellion. There's one who is coming and you're going to hurt him, Satan. You're going to do something horrible to him, but he will ultimately crush you. He will ultimately destroy you and destroy all that you have done. You have been warned there is hope, people, because there is a seed who is coming who will set all of what's wrong right. One person wrote, and I love this, the rest of the Bible is one long and detailed answer to the question, who is this seed? Who is this one? Because when you read this, you're left saying, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm in the same predicament. I need a covering. I've got shame. I've got something. I need somebody who's going to fix it. What's going to happen? Who is this one? Who are we looking for? And as you're reading, and we'll point it out as we go through Genesis 1 through 12, constantly over and over, the seed is mentioned again and again and again. And as we read all of Scripture, the main character of the Bible comes to life. And he is Jesus. In the darkest night, a ray of light beams in and tells us there's one who's coming to fix the problem. It's huge. Oh my goodness, that is so wonderful. Imagine reading Genesis 3 without that. Oh, the despair that we would feel Oh, the joy and the hope that comes from that one verse. So what do we do with this? Well, I, I skipped a little part. Let me say this, because I think this is good. Notice that it's the seed of woman, Jesus born of a virgin, the seed of woman, struck but not defeated on the cross, defeating death by his resurrection. Romans 5, 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Death came from Adam, life comes from Christ. In closing, there's, there's three things I'd like to, for us to kind of think about together. Kind of some application. So what do, we, what do we do with what we've heard? Three things I put before you for you to kind of think about. First thing is this. We all stand in the line of Adam. We're all his descendants. To be honest with you, a lot of times we don't want to think about that. We look at ourselves and we compare ourselves to other people and we may be better than a lot of people. We've not done this. We've not been this way. We've not thought like them. And so therefore, we must be better. Surely, I mean, surely we're all better than Hitler in this room. Surely, you know, there's, there's, we could go on. We could come up with examples. You can always find somebody who's committed a more heinous crime than you and look at them and say, you know what? Really, I don't know about this sinful stuff. Let's just be honest for one second and look inside of us. You know yourself better than anybody else knows yourself. I know that when I look at me, I see within myself this part of me that, that does not submit to God the way that it should. And even the smallest ounce of disobedience is grand and cosmic treason. Because God has given us all that we need, and yet we choose to do it our own way. It's important for us to know that. Not so that we sit around in a dark corner in hopelessness. Not so that we just sit around and beat up ourselves. I've said this before, but I think it bears saying again. The Holy Spirit does not convict us of sin so that we just sit around thinking how bad we are. The Holy Spirit shows us our sin so that we run to Jesus and find cleansing and hope and security, and peace, and acceptance, and forgiveness. 
And so maybe even this morning, you walked into this room not a follower of Jesus. You came because somebody invited you, somebody drugged you, or you walked into the wrong place and you were too embarrassed to walk out. I don't know why you may be here if you're not following Jesus, but let me tell you this. You probably know that your life wouldn't stack up. You probably know that you've turned against God and done some things that God doesn't like. Some people maybe even feel like, well, God could never forgive me. The beauty of this passage is that it's like a mallet that crushes us and a cast that puts us back together so we can heal the right way. There's hope in this. What was going to be my third point of application, I want to move to my second, because there's hope for all who trust in Christ. What amazingness we see in the fact that Christ would redeem us. You see, when we look at the fall as followers of Jesus, it helps us to see the stark reality. We see our sin for what it really is, and then we turn our eyes and we look at the cross. And the sheer magnitude of the cross expands our hearts to worship, expands our hearts to desire obedience and love, and we want others to, who are broken to know the healing they can find in Christ. And it helps those who, who aren't followers in Christ to see the magnitude of the love that God would pour out on us. Third thing is this. We must not believe Satan and sin's lie. We must not believe it. It's unfolded right there in front of us. It's right there. We know what it is. Did God really say? That's not true. God's holding out on you. In fact, if you choose this, and just hold up whatever sin that might be, that will fulfill you more than what God will fulfill you with. And I love the way that Pink said that God has wisely withheld some things from us because he knows the death and destruction that they will bring. So this week, as you're engaging in a battle with sin, and you're confronted with it, grab a hold of that. Don't believe the lie. Know the truth. Know what Scripture says. Know how much God loves you and wants the best for you. God did say there's certain things we shouldn't do and certain things we should do. And God does love us. And God is good. And God knows that if we disobey, it brings corruption and rebellion. But in obedience, we find blessing and hope. So this week, as you, as you fight with those sins that are in your life, remember that. Look to the cross. Trust in Jesus and fight for obedience. This morning, if, if maybe this morning you're here and you've heard this for the first time and you know that you need to begin following Jesus, what I want you to do is I want you to do one of two things. One, if somebody brought you and you know they're a follower of Jesus, I want you even now, even as we stand and sing, just look at them and say, hey, look, I need to talk to you. This whole, I need, I, need to, I need to start, I need more information about this following Jesus stuff because that sin, that's me, I need forgiveness, I need that. Or maybe, you, maybe you're here by yourself and you want somebody else to talk to. I'll be in the back, please come talk to me. Don't, don't wait, don't put it off. And maybe this morning you need to just spend some time worshiping, some time confessing, some time praying for strength, praying for wisdom, how to detect the lie that you can walk forward in obedience. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the tough parts of your word that don't sugarcoat things, that don't make them as if they're not that big of a deal. And God, thank you for in the midst of hurt and pain, loving us and saving us and cleansing us and covering us and drawing us near. Father, I pray that we would trust the gospel so deeply that we would know you love us. We look to the cross motivated by that with love and pursue obedience and holiness in all things. Father, thank you for this. Turn our eyes to Jesus and may we respond in a life of praise. In Christ's name.